As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. The deadline is behind us. Of course, this is Ken's mailbag on Monday. Pennant races getting ready to heat up as we roll into August. We have some trade deadline reaction questions in the bag today. I'm Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal, who was in St. Louis Saturday night for the Cardinals' sixth straight win. We're recording this on Sunday. They're on the field right now against the Yankees looking for a possible seventh straight win. But they're back in first place entering play on Sunday. Meanwhile, the Brewers traded away Josh Hader at the deadline. Ken, give me some insight into what's going on here in the National League Central. Tim, I'll try. I don't know if I'll succeed. The Cardinals clearly, in my view, have been a really good team all year. And they have not always played like a really good team. And for a while, offensively, they struggled and they had their rotation issues. And it seemed that they just weren't fully in sync. Now, with all the things you just described, the winning streak, getting into first place, at least entering Sunday... This is the team that we thought we'd be seeing. And it's a really interesting team in a lot of ways. One, and if you watch the game Saturday night, and really if you watch the Cardinals play at any point this year, you'll see this. They are an exquisite defensive team. Not a good defensive team, an exquisite defensive team. Now, the metrics don't always show that. They're third in defensive run save behind the Yankees and Dodgers. Obviously, that's quite good. You go to StatCast. Outs above average. They're 16th. I don't get why there's such a discrepancy between these metrics. It drives me crazy. But if you watch the Cardinals play, you know they're very good defensively. Arnado's great. Goldschmidt's great. Newt is really good and right. Obviously, they've traded Bader. We'll get to that in a second. But all around the infield, they've got Edmund. He's a gold glover. Dijon is a very good defender. He is back at shortstop. That's one thing. The other thing, their offense. Now, they need perhaps one more bat to protect Arnado and Goldschmidt. Now, that bat is not going to come via trade. It's got to have to come now from within. It could be Tyler O'Neill. It could be DeJong. But they probably need one more guy to step up to really get this thing clicking. And maybe it'll never happen that way, right, when you have everything going at once. But 
They're a good offensive club. There's no doubt about that. So the question has been, the question entering the deadline was their rotation. Now, they did not get Montas or Castillo. They did get two guys who should help. And Jose Quintana, in my estimation, is a pro. Is he what he used to be? No, but he is a guy who, if not quite good enough to start a postseason game, can certainly help you get there. Jordan Montgomery, now is he good enough to start a postseason game? Well, there might be differing opinions on that. And the Yankees had one opinion. That is largely why they traded him for Harrison Bader. They didn't see him going ahead of Cole and Montas and Cortez and Severino once he's healthy, maybe even Jamison Tyone. All those guys they thought might be ahead of Montgomery in a postseason rotation equation. Okay, but we saw what he did against the Yankees, his former team, just four days after getting traded Saturday night. Five scoreless innings in oppressive heat. He had to leave with cramps. He was really good. I expect him to be good. And they could get Flaherty back at some point. He's had the shoulder problem. They might even get Steven Matz back before the end of the season. He's had the torn MCL in his left knee. The bullpen's very good with Cabrera and Hicks and Gallegos and Helsley and Palante. So I really like the team. Now, are they a better team than the Brewers? Well, I've thought that all along. And now that the Brewers do not have Josh Hader, it's probably safe to say, yeah, it's probably a significant difference between the two. Because what has been the Brewers' strength all these years, really? The top of the rotation and the back end of the bullpen. When you had Burns and Woodruff and when you had Devin Williams and Josh Hader. Now, I've tried to explain in print and on air Saturday night why the Brewers did what they did. And I'm not defending it by explaining it. I'm just giving you their rationale. And I'll give it to you once more and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. In their view, Josh Hader was a guy who was probably going to make $15, $16 million next year and then leave as a free agent. They weren't going to be able to keep him. So at some point, they were going to entertain a trade. Probably would have behooved them to do it in the offseason, right? But if you do it this offseason, it's one pennant race. He's going to make a lot of money in his free agent year. You might not get the value you would at the deadline. So by all accounts, they made a pretty good trade for him. The prospects they got were pretty good. They got Taylor Rogers back. And then in separate deals, they acquired Matt Bush, who has struggled so far in Milwaukee, and Trevor Rosenthal, who is not yet active. So the way they saw it, and again, it's just with the Yankees trade the same thing. I tried to explain the Montgomery trade. I'm not defending it. I'm explaining the club's thinking. We have to understand this, and then we can make our own opinion. So the way they saw it, Hader was a guy who only preferred to pitch one inning. Now, his point was that enabled him to pitch more frequently. And the Brewers, it seemed, some of their people were a little frustrated by that. I'm talking about decision makers, not players in the clubhouse. They thought, ah, we need him at some points to go more than one. It's not great. Whatever. Their thinking is they get three relievers to replace one. They become a more versatile, deeper bullpen, and they go about it that way. Taylor Rogers certainly has had a good year. Really good early on. Not as good for maybe from the month of June on. But Hayter, too, had struggled, if you remember, at some points. So that's their logic. And I don't necessarily think it's faulty in itself. Where I think the problem comes in and where you lose the clubhouse a little bit and we have the team, at least presently, going into Sunday afternoon when they're trying to get two of three from the Reds, they're kind of reeling because the Brewers didn't do much to kind of counter the emotional impact of losing Hader. That was a big blow. He's a popular guy in that clubhouse. He always will be. 
that was a very tight-knit group, one of my favorite teams to cover because of that. And had they brought in a hitter, and I'm not sure who that hitter is, but I used on television Saturday night Josh Bell as an example. If you had brought in a guy like that, Brandon Drury, somebody who could give you some other boost outside of the bullpen and who could make the players and coaching staff and manager feel like, okay, we did this one thing to subtract, but we're doing this other thing to really add. Then it seems to me, and I can only speak my opinion, I don't know exactly what each person in that clubhouse is thinking, but it seems to me if they had done that, then the whole thing would have been easier to justify. Okay, we're kind of redoing the team a little bit. We have our reasons, but we're bringing in something pretty special. They didn't do that. And that, to me, is where the problem comes in. Now, I had an executive tell me the other day, kind of lament to me, about how he believes David Stearns, the guy who runs the Brewers, is going to get blamed for them not winning the division, if that's what happens, or not even making the playoffs, if that's what happens, when, in fact, this was all going to shake out this way anyway, that the Cardinals were always the better team and always going to win. I don't know that that's the case. But the Cardinals are really interesting, too. And they frustrate their fans at the deadline seemingly every year. Now, I don't know about this year. It seems that they did okay. But remember, they were one of the teams that the Nationals identified as a strong contender for Juan Soto simply because they have this amazing ability to churn out young talent. And this executive made a great point to me about the Cardinals. And it's something worth keeping in mind as you watch them year to year. The way he put it, he said the Cardinals never stick their head in a noose. They never put themselves in that horrible position where something really difficult to their team is going to happen. They kind of go halfway, right? And it's why they're good, in his opinion, but never great. So they're a team that they'll try to win between 88 and 92 games every year. They generally do that, but they never try to win 98. They don't go all in and spend the money or the prospects necessary to get those marginal five or six wins. There's a lot of logic in doing that. Now, I know it's not an all-in philosophy, obviously, but at the same time, if you get in, we know this, you get in the playoffs, you can get hot and win it. And what the Cardinals do is they avoid the valleys as well as perhaps the high peaks that other teams go through. They're not going through what the Cubs are going through right now. They haven't gone through that in quite some time. I can't even remember. They avoid that. And it takes discipline to do that, to not trade your prospects, or at least all your prospects, just trade some of them, but yet remain committed to what you do, which is develop players, plug them into the major league team. I believe they had 12 homegrown players on their roster as of last night. 12. They've used a number of rookies this year. They are very, very good year to year. They don't generally go out at the deadline anyway and make the big splash. And even when they make a splash for an Arenado or a Goldschmidt, they're doing it with players that eh, they can afford to trade or they're doing it in a way where they're taking on Arenado's contract without obviously giving up too much in prospect capital. So they are the gold standard of that division and in some ways one of the gold standards of baseball, right along with the Yankees and Dodgers. And it's going to be a challenge for the Brewers in their present state to catch them. But I'll make one more point and then we'll get to the mailbag. Last year, not quite analogous, but similar. Mariners traded Kendall Graveman to the Astros, their biggest rival in the division, in the middle of a pennant race. Now, the Mariners were not going to win the division, but they were right in the thick of the wild card, and their clubhouse was furious. 
it was the same kind of thing. They struggled for a little bit, and then they come back, and they win 90 games. The Brewers, I imagine, are going to gather themselves and say, listen, we've got a good team here. All right, we might not like what happened, but let's go. The morning period is going to end, and they're going to have to play. And I believe they're going to be right there in the thick of the wild card still. They've got too much talent. They've got Burns and Woodruff and Peralta coming back now. But at the same time, that trade, the hater trade, is something that they're going to be scrutinized for one way or the other as we go forward this season. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, you can call us at the number 646-547-0072. You can also send us an email, that address, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And, Ken, we do have a few questions related to the trade deadline and its aftermath, starting with Jay Lentner. He says, here's an assignment for you. Please find out from GMs like Cashman and Bloom and others why they did not get Juan Soto for three pennant races, even if you don't sign him long term. I'd say he's worth your top prospects. The Yankees in particular seem like they could offer a package the Nats would have loved. Any GM and owner should want Soto on their team, and I'd love to know why he was traded to the Padres and not one of the other teams. Jay, it's pretty simple. The Padres offered the best players, and... I'm not sure, even if the Yankees or Red Sox offered, I don't know, their top five or six or five of their top eight, whatever it might have been, however you wanted to find what the Padres ultimately gave up, I'm not sure they could have topped the Padres' talent level. And remember, it takes two to tango here. It's not simply Bloom or Brian Cashman saying, I want Juan Soto, and then it happening if they part with the right prospects. If the Nationals prefer prospects from another team, then guess what? They're going to go to that team. And clearly, they liked what the Padres offered. The Padres gave up an awful lot in terms of prospects. Now, I know it's Juan Soto. He's 23, three pennant races. I wrote it 100 times, and I don't know that you can make a bad trade for Juan Soto. But I don't know also that the Yankees or Red Sox or any other team for that matter, even if they had said, take our best, it would have matched what San Diego ultimately gave up. So... It's easy for a fan, I'm sure, to sit there and say, whoa, 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 why did we not make that trade? But at the same time, as I said, a trade occurs between two parties. Both parties must agree. And it's not simply one team being willing to give up a certain amount of players, even if that team is willing to give it up. The team that is on the other end of it might not prefer that to another package. Simple as that. All right, next question comes from Ben. He says, it seems like every year there's a mid-level player who gets traded without being the top story of the deadline, but who goes on to win a series MVP, either in the championship series or the World Series. I'm thinking as a Giants fan of Marco Scudero coming to San Francisco in 2012 and then hitting 500 in the NLCS against the Cardinals. More recently, there's Jorge Soler and Jock Peterson for the Braves last year which under-the-radar players sent to a contender have the best chance to make a big postseason impact this year? Ben, I love this question, and you're so correct that there always is one, right? Somebody who, hmm, we don't really talk about at the deadline and becomes a major factor. I'll give you a few names. One of them is 
perhaps the least famous player the Padres acquired, and that would be Brandon Drury. You saw what he did in his first game with the Padres, a grand slam. It was quite impressive. He has 20-plus home runs this season. He is a really good, solid player that you can plug in in different ways, and he is someone who could be that postseason hero. The Mets acquisitions. All three of the offensive acquisitions, Darren Ruff, Dan Vogelback, and Tyler Naquin. None in and of himself is a superstar. But they acquired Ruff and Vogelbach to essentially be a DH platoon. And Naquin is a guy they can fill in here and there. And he had a two-homer game the other night. He fits in certain matchups as well. None of those guys I would call a star or anything close to a star. But we've already seen them contribute. And while the Mets took some criticism for not perhaps doing enough, what they did, except in the bullpen where I wish they would have done more, was probably sufficient. They've got a good club, and they kind of filled in their gaps on the position player side where they needed to. So I like that. One more, but I don't see him in the same light as these others simply because he's not having a good year, is Robbie Grossman of the Braves. I don't know how much he'll play, but he is a useful part, kind of a veteran guy who maybe steps up in a pinch hit situation in a playoff game and does something big. So, Tim, save this, and if actually... Any of these things does happen. Let's try to look smart for a change. Oh, yeah. We're calling them back up for sure if if it happens. If not, if. this never <laughs> happened. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Uh, All right, next question comes from voicemail. Hey, Tim and Ken. I just got done listening to your pre-deadline show. Thanks for staying up late to record that. This is Michael from Bellingham. Um, So right before the trade deadline, um, it was an interesting question on that show from the Washington Nationals fan asking who to blame for the predicament of the franchise. I'm a Cubs fan, and... I think it's a similar question that Cubs fans could ask, maybe Red Sox, maybe other fans of other well-off franchises. Once teams are in this situation, GMs get a lot of credit for, quote-unquote, doing the right thing, you know, making the tough decisions to sell now um, for the future and build for the future because that's kind of doing it the right way, for lack of a better term, maybe the money ball way. And the Cubs certainly as a franchise are the poster child for that working out. And I was all for it when Theo and Jed did that the first time around. But now I'm starting to get the kind of sinking sensation, perhaps, and maybe you can disabuse me of that notion, that some teams, and maybe this is more ownership than general managers, are using this let's do it the right way approach to actually 
not compete intentionally for a few years and save money. Michael, there's no question that has happened. And we've seen it in a number of cases. Those teams would deny it. They do deny it, but the union filed grievances against some of them. The Rays, the Pirates, the Marlins, the A's, because they felt these teams were not spending their revenue sharing money, not doing their best to compete. Now, let's look at the Cubs, because that's the team you root for, and that's the team you're asking the questions about. As I said with the Nationals, when a team's farm system goes bad, as has happened to the Nationals and then the Cubs as well, you certainly can question the front office for that. That's their responsibility. Drafting, developing, signing international players, developing them. That is on the front office. Now, some teams draft at lower positions than others. Yes, I get that. Some teams get extra picks. The Cardinals, for example, get an extra competitive balance pick that kind of angers other teams that don't believe they deserve that pick. But at the same time, the Cardinals generally draft pretty low, and yet they hit. They hit on guys. Other teams drafting highly don't hit at the same rate. So that's on the teams. Now, the Cubs situation is a little unique because their big-time guys, Bryant, Rizzo, Schwarber, Baez, all hit free agency at the same time. Now, you could say, well, they should assign one or two of them, but they would counter that they did try. And when it didn't happen, they had to make the deals they did. The Bryant trade in particular is looking good. Rizzo, Baez, remains to be seen how those trades will work out. But for Baez, the Cubs got a very good prospect, Pete Crow Armstrong, who the Mets now regret losing. So those trades will probably turn out like these kinds of trades usually turn out. Some good, some bad. The question ultimately becomes, and this is the test that they're going to have this offseason. Okay, you've taken the payroll down, but you're a big market team. You are not the Pittsburgh Pirates, okay? You should be spending money. And the Cubs sort of did that a little bit last year with Stroman and what they did. Obviously, Seiya Suzuki as well. Those were two pretty significant investments. But this is the offseason now where they've got to start spending again. They've got to get, and I believe they will get, one of the big shortstops. And they need to do some work around the edges for sure, to say the least. They've got some promising things happening. Aiken and Thompson, the rotation, Morell, a number of different guys, but you have to supplement, obviously. So that's on ownership. And to some extent with the Cubs, this is all on ownership because they didn't spend to replace the players that they lost right away. They decided to retrench. And maybe that was the right decision. It might prove that way. But it's frustrating to go through, and it's frustrating when you support as a fan, a big market team that takes the same approach that you see some low-revenue teams taking. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't strike you as right. And I can certainly understand that thinking. Okay, Michael Weber says, I'm sad to learn of the passing of the great Vin Scully. I would listen to my Brewers broadcast and then switch over to the Dodgers broadcast just to listen to Vin. Can each of you share a story about Vin Scully? Well, Michael, I shouldn't even admit this, but... The truth is, I never introduced myself to Vin. I was always kind of scared. And when I see now all the tributes and all the people who say how welcoming he was, and I know how welcoming he was. I knew this from everyone. I just could never, for some reason, get up the courage to go into the booth and say, Mr. Scully, I'm Ken Rosenthal, etc. 
that's on me. <laughs> it's absolutely a failing, and it prevents me from having any personal stories. But I will share this because it's something that is so meaningful in my mind. I was at the Kirk Gibson game. I was covering it for the Baltimore Evening Sun, and I was in the press box that night, so I didn't hear the broadcast. Back then, I don't know that we could hear the broadcast while we were at work like you can now. You can do all these things. But if you listen to the Gibson at bat, it's on YouTube. It's about 10 minutes long. Vince Scully's building of that moment and then delivering of that moment, his delivery of that moment, is so exquisite, so impeccable, that I always encourage people to listen to it. It's, it's a joy to listen to. It's one of the great moments in recent baseball history. It's one of my all-time favorite moments, period. And hearing his descriptions, it's incredible to me. And a number of writers have pointed this out. And this is the most salient thing I can say. So we sit at our keyboards and we try to write and we try to put words together as best we can to make our stories as good as possible. None of us None of us, not even the best of us, not even a Tom Verducci or a Jason Stark, can write as well as Vin Scully could talk off the top of his head. And that is astonishing to me. And he did it night after night after night. And it's just something so admirable and so unattainable for broadcasters, for writers. That's why he's Vin Scully to me, because he could speak and put together stories in paragraph form in a way that none of us can in written form. He did it in spoken form. And that, to me, Tim, is what stood out so much. Yeah, and what I'll say is similar. One, I did meet him for about two seconds in the Dodgers press box one year. Um, I was introduced. I shook his hand. He was off and running. But So I guess... That's a little more than you got, Ken, but it was so brief. But I will add, as far as the broadcasting goes, everything you said was so true. And the one thing I will add is I do some play-by-play -play baseball broadcasting, and I've always had at least one partner in the booth, sometimes two partners in the booth. And it's still challenging because there's so much downtime in baseball. Vin Scully did, these, did Dodgers games for all those years solo, and it just... I can't even fathom doing one or two baseball games solo without there being all this dead air where you're just trying to come up with something to say. And Vince Scully not only could fill the time, but he could fill it in an incredible way with these great stories and the history and everything he brought to the game. He was absolutely one of a kind. Tim, one more thing. Yep. So one of the things when I was making the transition from print to broadcast and it was really difficult for me because you had to be conversational and you had to be yourself and not stilted or anything like that and that took a while and I would say there are times I'm still not great at it the amazing thing about Scully he did it as you said solo for so many years and it was as if he was speaking to a friend and not only did he have these amazing stories and his amazing knowledge of the game and feel for the game, he had this conversational, friendly way about him that endeared himself to an entire 
population in Los Angeles that had not had baseball before, right? That was a team that relocated from Brooklyn. And, man, <laughs> it's just unfathomable all that he accomplished. All right, next question comes from Dan. He says, I have a basic understanding of what it means when a player gets designated for assignment, but could you do a quick overview of really what it means, especially as teams make roster moves in the aftermath of the trade deadline? When I see news of a player getting DFA'd, sometimes it seems like a big deal, and other times it seems like a simple roster move. I've never quite understood all the details. Same with the options. I think there's a limit on them. Do players only get DFA'd when they're out of options? Dan, good question, and before I even answer, and I'm happy to answer, I will tell you, and we've had other questions along these lines, you can Google some of this stuff. MLB.com has a really good glossary for terms like this, and they explain them in pretty simple fashion. So I'll go through it, but just keep that in mind for the future. So a DFA occurs when a player is out of options and a team wants to remove him from its 40-man roster. Once the player is designated for assignment, the team has seven days. It previously was 10. This is a new CBA thing. Seven days to either trade that player or place him on irrevocable outright waivers. Now, I'll go through it. If the player is claimed, he goes on the claiming team's 40-man roster. At that point, he can either be optioned if options remain because sometimes these things occur with players who do have options and just need to be removed for whatever reason from the roster or the player whose claim goes right to the 26-man roster. We see that all the time. A player who is cleared gets either outrighted to the minors or released. Now, if that player has more than three years' experience or was previously outrighted, he can reject the assignment in favor of free agency. Now, I'm sure I'm confusing you by this point, but I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to answer the question. So basically what teams do here is just try to clear spots on the 40-man roster. It could be for a player... They acquired in a trade. That's frequently what happens at the deadline. Could be for a minor leaguer that they want to promote from the minors, or it could be for someone coming off the 60-day injured list. That often is the case. When you want 40-man space, you can put a player on the 60-day IL, and he doesn't count against the 40-man. Now, one more thing on options. Used to be they were unlimited. Now, under the new CBA, a player can be optioned maximum of five times during a season before he gets exposed to the waiver process. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. 
All right, next question comes from John. He says, I was looking at some advanced stats on different sites, such as Baseball Reference, Fangraphs, ESPN, et cetera, and I noticed that war for some players is different depending on which site you use. I don't think this is the case for other sabermetric stats. Since war is one of the most important metrics, should the baseball community come to a consensus as to how war is calculated? I would say the answer to that is yes, but each site that does this, Fangraphs is one, Baseball Prospectus is another, BaseballReference.com a third. They have their own definitions. They have their own metrics that they use to build war. And I'm not going to go through how each one is calculated by each site, but there are differences in each, differences both on the pitching end and the position player end. It can create some confusion. Now, when I bring this up to sabermetrically inclined people, I'll give you an example. MLB Network's Brian Kenny, who's a friend of mine. Brian will say, listen, they're estimates. They're not supposed to be perfect. And you can use them as reference points and kind of as a starting point for your research when you're looking at players. But nothing is the end-all, be-all. I understand that, and fair enough. But a lot of people use war now as... Something of an end-all, be-all. So it would behoove all of these different websites to come up with one definition. It would be difficult for them to do that because they all have different feelings about what goes into wins above replacement, the various components and how those components are calculated. At the same time, it is a little bit confusing, but even if we had one, even if those sites could agree on one, it still would be only an estimate and it wouldn't be a totally perfect calculation. It's not going to happen. We're not going to get that. We're not going to get the holy grail of knowing each player's value in a single number. And one reason, as I touched on earlier, is the difference in defensive metrics and how they're viewed. That's just one aspect of this. And catchers with war, I don't think they're properly valued. Yadier Molina does not get properly captured by war. So... It's never going to be perfect. I wish it was more perfect, especially on the defensive side. It drives me crazy when I look up a player to see how his advanced metrics are, defensive run save versus outs above average, and they are diametrically opposed in what the ratings are. It drives me nuts. And I can see where war would be the same, and yes, they are calculated differently. Pitching, particularly in reference, is one thing, and it's different in fan graphs. I get it. But at the same time, as I said, it's not going to be perfect. I wish it was more along those lines, and maybe we'll get there eventually. And Brian would always tell me, and I don't like this explanation, but he always would tell me, hey, it's better than anything we had before, before we were going on errors. And I'm like, yeah, it's better, but it's still not good. So in any case, that's the answer. It's not a great answer, but it's basically where we're at. All right, final questions from voicemail. Uh, hey, Ken, this is Fred from Los Angeles. I just want to thank you and the team at The Athletic for all of the very, very, very up-to-date notice on the trade deadline. It's been very exciting to read this uh, last week. Uh, I recently watched the documentary Facing Nolan, uh, which is available to uh, to buy or rent on a lot of streaming platforms. And uh, plus, we have the captain on ESPN right now about Derek Jeter. So I was just wondering, what do you recommend for baseball fans, really good baseball documentaries? Uh, again, thanks for all the hard work this last week, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Fred. I'll give you a few. One, and I'm admitting to a bias here, 
it was directed by a former, he wasn't in my class at Penn, but he was at Penn the same time I was, the University of Pennsylvania. His name is John Hawk, very well-known guy in the production creative world of television. And his documentary was Fastball, and I saw it at the Tribeca Film Festival. This was some years back, and it was all about the fastball, the physics of the fastball, the legend of the fastball, just the sheer power of the fastball, and it had all these great interviews with guys like Verlander and Bob Gibson and Aroldis Chapman and right down the line, and hitters too, Hank Aaron, George Brett. It was fantastic to watch. Nolan Ryan was also part of that. That's one. Baseball by Ken Burns, of course, that's a classic. Screwball, if you remember that one, didn't get maybe as much attention, but it was kind of about the Balco scandal. Not kind of, it was about the Balco scandal, and it was done in a kind of humorous fashion. Anthony Bosch, Alex Rodriguez, all the characters are portrayed by child actors. It's kind of hilarious to watch this thing and just the sheer antics of what was going on. And finally, Pelotero which is one about baseball recruitment in the Dominican Republic that's also fascinating and particularly relevant at a time when we've been discussing the international draft quite a bit and the way player procurement is handled in the DR and other Latin American countries. It's educational, this documentary, in that regard. All right, that's it for this week. If you want to get involved next time around, you can call us at 646-543-7072 or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. The Athletic Baseball Show, back to its regularly scheduled episodes this week. We're here Monday, Tuesday, Starkville, Wednesday, the Roundtable. The 3-0 Show on Thursday and DVR and Law coming up on Friday. If you want to join The Athletic, you can do it for $1 a month up to six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, thanks for all the great information. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.